Well, the clocks went back last night. The evenings will be drawing in from this point forward. I wonder how many of you know today that there are 52 shopping days left until Christmas. If you exclude Sundays, that is, and as all good people in church this morning, I'm sure you will not be shopping on a Sunday. Um, I wonder how that piece of information strikes you. Uh, just, just turn to your neighbor and um, just give your initial thoughts. What does that piece of information, 52 shopping days left till Christmas, well, how does that make you feel? Okay, if I can just draw you to uh, a close. Uh, my guess is that it will actually bring a range of responses according to your personal circumstances. Uh, to me, my anticipation of Christmas covers quite a range of emotions, and that particular piece of information brings Christmas uncomfortably close in terms of what I've got to do and organize before uh, Christmas actually arrives. On the other hand, for my nine-year-old nephew, for whom Christmas is a time of sheer unmitigated delight, uh, 52 is a very large number. <laughs> and it will probably feel to him like an impossibly long time to wait. He'll be an eagerly anticipating Christmas from the time that he sees the first Christmas tree in the shops. And I guess that's about now, actually. An event like Christmas has a significant impact on us all. And whilst for most of us, hopefully, it will be a time of happiness and joy as we celebrate the birth of Christ and we spend time with our families, for some, indeed for some people here today, Christmas might be a difficult time because of their particular circumstances. So the same essentially joyful event will, in reality, impact all of us in very different ways. And we're likely to experience a whole range of emotions, some of which we might not well have anticipated in advance. And our Bible passage today opens with a momentous event, perhaps the most joyous event to have occurred or to have happened to Abraham and Sarah in the whole of their lives, the birth of their son, Isaac. Now, this event had been anticipated for a very long time. It was over 25 years since God had first promised Abraham that his wife Sarah would bear a child, a child who would be the founder of a great nation. And such a long time had passed without anything happening, except the couple getting older and older, that Abraham and Sarah had more or less given up hope. The whole idea seemed a laughable one to both of them. And so Abraham, at Sarah's suggestion, made alternative provision for, uh, to ensure that the family name carried on by fathering a child, Ishmael, by his slave girl, Hagar. At the birth of Isaac, this joyful, long-awaited event, impact is... Abraham's household in very different ways. And it initiated a chain of events that Abraham certainly hadn't anticipated. What I'd like to do this morning is to take a look at the reactions of Abraham and Sarah and of Hagar and Ishmael to the birth of Isaac and to ask the question, 
what was their experience of God in their very different life circumstances? Abraham and Sarah had had a long-standing promise fulfilled, but Hagar and Isaac had seen their future hopes and dreams dashed in the birth of a legitimate heir. What did these people learn about God in those circumstances, and what can we learn from them that will help us not lose sight of God in both the joys of life, but also in its sorrows. Well, first of all, Abraham and Sarah. I don't think it's very difficult to imagine the celebration and joy that Abraham and Sarah had in the safe arrival of their son. This was the beginning of a new era, one that they never thought would have happened. As Sarah said at the beginning of the chapter, God has brought me laughter and everyone will rejoice with me. Perhaps not everyone, but we'll come to that later. But in spite of all Abraham and, and, and Sarah's failings, and there were many along the way, God had honored his promise. And here in Isaac was the tangible evidence of God's faithfulness to them, a son who was born, who grew, and who thrived. God really could be trusted, even though Abraham and Sarah couldn't see a way, humanly speaking, that a son could ever have been born to them. The very name of the boy, Isaac, says something about God's grace, because the name Isaac means he laughs. It was an everyday reminder that once they, his proud parents, had laughed at God, the very absurdity of the idea of a son. And now, that laughter of disbelief had, by God's grace, been replaced by the laughter of jubilation. I think there's something of the deep joy and satisfaction of Abraham and Sarah that comes over in the first verses of our passage. This was a truly special time for them. God was very real. They knew that he could be trusted. They were obedient to him in naming and circumcising the child as God had commanded them. Now, I hope that all of us here, whatever our current circumstances, will have had times in our lives when we have known God's faithfulness. Times when we've been especially close to him, when his revealed himself to us in some special way. A friend of mine calls those special times touching points. There's something to be treasured, touching points in our lives. These times sadly seldom seem to last forever. And as we can see in the next few verses of our reading, certainly didn't for Sarah and Abraham. But we can rejoice when they do happen. And like Sarah, we can share them with others. There's something very inspiring, I think, um, about hearing someone's testimony of discovering how God is working in their lives. It encourages us in our faith as well. And not 
just those sort of special mountaintop experiences. Uh, in my own experience, these special times don't actually happen very often. But just at an everyday level, it's good to share with others those places where we're seeing God at work in our lives. Our stories can be a source of help and encouragement to others. So I would encourage you to share your faith stories with others. Don't keep them to yourself. And when we ourselves hit a sticky patch in our own faith journey, when God feels seems remote or absent, we can revisit those special times, those times when we knew that God was real and active in our lives. And remembering can change our perspective on our current situations. As we recall God's faithfulness in the past, it can give us the courage to trust him in the present. A certain US colonel once said of his troops on the eve of a battle, you should be magnanimous in victory and gracious in defeat. Magnanimous in victory, gracious in defeat. I think both Sarah and Ishmael could have learned from this. Uh, but for the teenage Ishmael, that newborn rival in his father's affections was, was just too much. He must have been intensely jealous of his younger half-brother. Ishmael's dreams of being the one through whom God's promises were fulfilled had finally been dashed. And it was small wonder that he got his own back by poking fun at Isaac. And if you remember, there was never very much love lost between Sarah and Hagar. I suspect that Sarah was jealous of Hagar also for bearing Abraham's firstborn son, even though it was her suggestion to get the two of them together in the first place. But if you go back a few chapters, you can remember that Sarah had already ill-treated Hagar when she was pregnant with Ishmael in chapter 16. So much, he ill-treated her so much that Hagar ran away and had to be brought back. Jealousy is just such a corrosive emotion, isn't it? It drove Ishmael to mock Isaac, and Sarah, instead of being magnanimous in the birth of Isaac and trusting God in his promise to make a great nation through him, wanted to make sure that Ishmael wouldn't inherit by banishing him, both him and his mother. And poor old Abraham was caught right in the middle of it. It was God who gently reminded Abraham of the bigger picture of his, of God's picture. He saw the distress that Abraham was feeling, caught between love for both of his sons, and he reminded him of his promises to each of them. Yes, Isaac was the one through whom God's promises were chiefly to be fulfilled. God's plan wasn't going to be thwarted by Abraham's lack of trust in fathering Ishmael. But he was gracious to Ishmael too, in his promise to Ishmael to father a nation. And so that immediate practical solution was to separate the two sons and their mothers 
to prevent the family feuding from getting any worse. I think if we are in the middle of a fraught situation, particularly when we're caught up in strained relationships, it can sometimes be difficult to take a step back and to see God's bigger picture for us. Yet it's vitally important that we do. Otherwise, we can spend a lot of time and energy in pursuing things which cause pain and hurt all round, that are ultimately actually not that important. And God's gentle reminder to Abraham of his bigger picture and his promises could be a reminder to us too. But let's follow Hagar and Ishmael, banished out into the desert. You have to feel for them, don't you? Hagar has run out of water. She sees no hope for either of them. And she sobs her heart out as she anticipates the death of her son. And there was Ishmael, uprooted from his relatively comfortable life, curled up under a bush for protection against the hot sun, crying out in fear. Those two had been rejected by everyone, but they hadn't been rejected by God. God heard their cries, he saw their tears, and he had compassion on them. I think there's a wonderful tenderness in the exchange between the angel and Hagar, as she is told not to be afraid, but to go to the boy, to lead him by the hand to a well full of water. God was faithful to his promises to Ishmael. The angel reiterates the promise that Ishmael will father a nation, and we see that promise beginning to be fulfilled at the closing verses of our reading today when Ishmael marries an Egyptian. God provided both for Hagar and for Ishmael in their hour of need. And we see in this short exchange a God of compassion, of faithfulness, and of one who provides, even when there appears to be little hope. As a culture today, we tend not to do tears, do we? Particularly if we're male. We're somewhat embarrassed if we cry in public, and we'll often apologize for letting our feelings get the better of us. However, I think this passage shows that tears are actually very precious in God's sight. They can often be our unspoken prayer to a Heavenly Father who knows our needs without having to articulate them. The Psalms are full of cries to God for help and references to weeping. I think one of my favorites is Psalm 56, where David said of God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in, my, in, in your book. Sometimes life can feel so hopeless and we can feel so powerless to change anything that, like Hagar, all we can do is to shed tears of grief. And if you've experienced this, or you're standing alongside someone who is in a situation where all feels very hopeless, 
then I hope that you will find comfort and strength in this story of Hagar and Ishmael, where we see a God who is faithful. He remains faithful to them. He heard their cries and who compassionately provides. Our tears, our prayers, collected in God's bottle. God knows and understands our deepest needs and is able to meet them. God's plan of salvation for the world started with Abraham, but of course was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And it is to Christ that I'm going to briefly turn in this last section, because I'd like us to see something of the unchanging character of God reflected in him. To me, it was God's faithfulness, in spite of Abraham's failings, that comes through most clearly in our Old Testament story. And Jesus was supremely faithful in taking the road to the cross. He kept his promise to be obedient to his heavenly Father, even when in the Garden of Gethsemane, the thought of what he was going to have to endure was almost too much for him. Jesus saw his Father's salvation plan through to the end. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane also that we see Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow. God knows us in our darkest hours, as he did with Hagar and Ishmael, because he has experienced human suffering firsthand in Jesus. He has infinite compassion and is able to meet us at our individual points of need. He's the same faithful God for us as he was for Abraham. And he is in Jesus. As I close, let's draw some threads together. We've experienced the extremes of joy and sorrow today in our various characters in the story. Abraham and Sarah found God in their joy, and it reinforced their faith in a God who keeps his promises. Hagar and Ishmael also discovered that God was faithful to his promises, but they experienced God's provision in their grief and their despair. We'll all have good times and bad times in our lives. This story encourages us to see God in the very different circumstances of our lives and to keep trusting him in the bad times as well as in times when things are good. The night before he died, Jesus promised his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God is faithful and he promises to do the same for us. Ultimately, he will turn any sorrow and imperfections of this earthly life into the joy and perfection of heaven, a joy that nothing and no one can take away. Amen.